Lord Jesus, please be with us tonight. Put your spirit at work amongst us. Father God, please teach us what we need to know. Show us yourself. Show us what we're like. Convict our hearts and challenge us. Feed us for the week ahead. Grant me the right words, the right approaches. By your power, distract from me and point to you. Teach us in our hearts. Equip us to to change and to grow. Amen. Let me read Titus 2. It's on page 1198 if you've got one of the church Bibles. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, teach the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, where we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Okay, so we've we've been looking at this letter for the last couple of weeks, and Titus has been left with the churches on Crete with the task of getting them established so that when he moves on and goes to catch up with Paul and the rest of their missionary band, these churches should be able to stand firm. The hope is that by the time he he leaves them, the Cretan churches will be well-rooted and established, clear in their teaching, clear in their knowledge of the gospel, And clear on how they're to live in such a way that God's name is glorified. So that they build each other up as a church. And so that the rest of the Cretan populace around them can see the gospel at work. Two weeks ago we did an overview of the letter. And I suggested three themes that I think run through this. Firstly, Paul seems really keen that the Cretan Christians get that they're called to be a new people. They're set apart from Cretan culture. They're living by a different set of standards. And that seems to be especially important for them as a group because the Cretans around them were a a troublesome people. Renowned in chapter 1 verse 12 as liars and evil brutes and lazy gluttons. So they were called to be a new people. 
And they were called to be marked out by the way that they behave. Second theme. This letter is all about actions. It's about what it looks like to live a good life. The kind of behaviour that mature Christians should aspire to. And then third theme underlying those. The motivation for living differently all throughout Titus is a clear knowledge of God's grace. Paul wants the Christians here on Crete to understand what Christ has done for them. And it's only because of that that they can hope to live differently. So if all that's going to happen when Titus moves on, that they need good leaders. And in chapter 1 last week, we looked at how Titus is charged with appointing elders who are, who are to be of Christian, godly, gospel-shaped character. Blameless in terms of their integrity, at home and publicly. And firmly grounded in the trustworthy message, in the gospel that they've received. Those guys are going to be left with the task of of teaching and building up the churches in Crete once Titus is gone. And then with standing against and rebuking those who would preach any other gospel. So the second half of chapter 1 described the rebellious teachers. The ones who are surfacing and and, and for dishonest gain, for the sake of money or power, they, they were disrupting the church by teaching different things from Paul's gospel. Get hints that there was a particular tendency to fold Christianity back into the context of Old Testament Judaism. Promoting circumcision and obedience to the law and ideas of cleanliness. And and by doing that, demoting the idea that there is salvation by grace to be had in Jesus. That there is complete security in his promises. So... In chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul described those false teachers as corrupted, unable to find any purity, uh, and so testifying by their actions that they do not know God. They are, he says, detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. They're unfit to be a people for Christ. So in chapter 2... Titus is given the the task which contrasts with them. Look at verse 1 and verse 15. Verse 1, you however must teach what is appropriate for sound doctrine. And then in verse 15, these then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. The, The commentaries tell me that sound doctrine in verse 1 isn't just about academic rigour. That the word there is the same that's the root of hygiene. It implies health or fitness. It's used elsewhere with people who have been healed and made whole. So, no longer corrupted. This is the teaching of the healed, healthy people of God. And in verse 15, he's to encourage and rebuke with all authority. He's not to let anyone despise him, which probably means reject his message. They can't ignore his teaching. It's too important. We don't know much of Titus' personality. If he was like Timothy, he might occasionally have been a shrinking violet. But on these issues in chapter 2, he couldn't. They're non-negotiable for Cretan Christians. So in the rest of this evening, we're going to look first at the basis for what Titus is to teach. And then we'll look at how he's to teach the Cretans to live. 
And then finally we'll think about what, what the equivalent means for us. So first of all, in um, verses 11 to 14, I'm being a bit crazy here and going backwards through the chapter, forgive me. Um, the basis of Titus's teaching is the same as everywhere else in the book. It's the gospel of grace that he has in Jesus. It's never salvation by works. Look over verses 11 to 14 again with me and you see, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I think the magic word in there is appearing in verses 11 and 13. It's the same word as epiphany. It's the making visible of something that was hidden. It's the unveiling of a concrete reality that otherwise they could not see. That the covers of the universe have been peeled back and revealing a truth to them which will utterly change their view of the world. So why should you live differently, Cretans? Well, because you've had an epiphany of grace in verse 11. An unveiling of the grace of God. Because a salvation from God has been offered to all people, you and others. And so the only sensible response is to to live accordingly. And knowledge of that grace will teach presumably by the action of the Holy Spirit, as as the power of God goes to work in his people. This grace will teach, will teach us to say no to our old lives, says Paul, to to ungodliness, to worldly passions, because in comparison to what's been revealed, those are of no value. And instead, the the revealing of this grace will, will teach us to live utterly different lives in this present age. That is despite being still in the same place and nation and context, knowledge of the grace that's been revealed drives God's people to live out self-controlled, upright godliness. There's been an epiphany, an unveiling of grace, but then Paul also points Titus forwards towards another unveiling yet to come. The epiphany of Christ's glory in verse 13. So to to be a Christian is to live in response to grace now, while also waiting for this blessed hope yet to come. The day when Christ's glory will be fully unveiled and we will see it for ourselves. Live accordingly. There's more to it than that, I think. It's not just Jesus is coming, look busy. This title that he uses, God and Saviour, That that was a a commonly used title in the first century. It was used for all kinds of of tribal gods and and the Roman emperor. And citizenship, particularly Roman citizenship, was a big deal in the first century. It, It carried with it all kinds of privileges and protections. And Paul's saying here, look, there is a a new empire coming with a great 
God and Saviour, a great emperor. A day of revelation is coming when the kingdom of heaven will be seen clearly. And these Cretan Christians are already citizens of that kingdom. They are already the people in verse 14 who have been redeemed from wickedness, brought back and purified and called to be Christ's own, eager to do what is good. This, hopefully, wouldn't be news to them. And if you've been coming to church for a while, it's not going to be news to you either. It's the gospel. To be a Christian is to know and respond to this offer. This offer of salvation that that God makes to all people. Jesus gave himself in our place, taking punishment due to us, so that we can be redeemed. So that we can be a people called for his name, for his purposes. And and these Christians on Crete, they would be accustomed to reminders of this. It would be built into their life together. When they met, they would break bread and share wine, as as we will later. That communion was a, a regular reminder of the sacrifice which has brought them freedom and washed them clean. And a regular reminder of their new identity. They're the body of Christ. They're a new nation, a new people. This week that might be particularly comforting for us to think that our our primary citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. That's where we are citizens, first and foremost. So Titus is to remind the people that in the light of that it would be incongruous and weird not to live changed lives. How can someone who is redeemed from wickedness not long to leave it behind them? How can someone who's given the keys to the kingdom of heaven not aspire to live accordingly? It's difficult. We don't manage it, do we? But Titus is to encourage and rebuke his people with all authority and not let them despise or ignore his teaching. It is too important. It's too wonderful to let slide. So what do they need to hear? In chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, Paul goes and and sets out a teaching pattern, a a, a syllabus, for essentially each adult social group. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves. Presumably there's some overlap there. At first glance, each is given specific instructions, but actually I think there's a common pattern. So I'm just going to pull out three common points that I think are there throughout. And the, the first is this, they're, they're all given a bit of the pattern of Jesus. Essentially, each group is being told the same thing, the same pattern to follow. And in chapter one, the elders were given this pattern as well, but, but to a stricter standard. They were to be blameless, faithful to their families, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not drunken, not violent, not dishonest, but rather hospitable, And lovers of doing good and and self-controlled and upright and holy and disciplined. It's a very high standard. It's very daunting. But as I said last week, it's particularly distinct from the Cretan culture around them. The liars and brutes and gluttons. Rather, they were meant to be imitators of Christ. The people of Christ, visible in the world by the way that they act, 
eager to do what is good, from verse 14. It's the same here for each group. Less of a stringent, urgent requirement that they fit the model immediately, but but each of them is told to copy some of the characteristics of the elders. Now, I think Paul uses likewise and similarly here to suggest that the whole lot really applies everywhere. The older women are given the same kind of pattern as the older men. The younger men are to be discipled in much the same way as the younger women. And so, just like the elders, every member of this church is to be an imitator of Christ. I suppose... They're given Titus and the elders to help them in that, to help them see how a godly adult might act, to help them to think through what imitating Christ might look like. They're given Titus and the leaders as well in in chapter 1 verse 9 to teach them sound doctrine. Again, that's literally healthy, hygienic doctrine. And I think it refers to the gospel laid out in chapter 2 verse 11. But crucially in this letter... It's never just an academic proposition. We do get, in verse 11 to 14, an academic statement of faith. But there's more needed than just asserting belief. That's not the nature of the teaching. It's not what we in the West tend to think of as learning in a classroom examined with pen and paper. Now, for Titus, this teaching and learning is going to be much more about the long-term change of behaviour. It's like an apprenticeship in goodness. Just like a carpenter or a potter doesn't just read a textbook and get good. It it, it takes years of practice to develop their skills and their strengths and their habits before they master their craft. That's the sense that comes through later in chapter 3 when Paul talks about the people devoting themselves to what's good. It's the kind of word about taking up a career. And it's the sense that begins to come through here. Teaching a way of life, a discipline, and and crucially self-control comes up again and again. In in Galatians 5, self-control is the culminating fruit of the Spirit. There to be people who apprentice themselves to goodness. Who over the long term are, are learning and cultivating the fruits of the Spirit. And are imitating and growing in likeness of the pattern that's laid down for them. So see in, in verse 2, the elder men, they're, they're to be temperate and respectable within the church. And self-controlled and healthy in faith and love and endurance. They're in the church for the long haul. They need to be role models. And just so in verse 3, the older women, they're they're to learn and commit to being people who live reverently. Not just lovers of what is good, as as the elders were meant to be in chapter 1, but but teachers of what is good. Not speaking ill of people, not given to wine. Again, really mirroring some of the qualifications in chapter 1. But again, also in stark contrast, the Cretan culture of, of dishonesty and gluttony. I think maybe some of the older folk in our church, some of the toffs who've been loving this community faithfully for decades. It's that kind of long-term commitment. And then there's the same sort of example for the next generation. Just as in chapter 1, the elders are to be faithful to their wives, the the younger women are, are, are to love their families. 
to be self-controlled and pure and kind. And busy at home and subject to their husbands raise all kinds of cultural flags for us. I'll come back to those in a bit. But I think what's meant is not that it's a bar to women in professional life. Paul certainly had nothing bad to say about people like Lydia, successful merchant in Philippi. Rather, I think it's about avoiding idleness. Again, one of those Cretan characteristics. And perhaps emphasising that where marriage and family have been chosen, it's a real commitment for husbands and wives. Something to be worked at. Note that the young men get the similarly following on from this. They're to be taught in the same way with the same set of characteristics coming through. And with them, Paul emphasises again self-control, discipline, integrity and, and soundness, healthiness of speech. And see again that the teaching's like an apprenticeship. There's an example to follow. It, it, it's not head knowledge, it's learning by seeing and doing and copying. And then finally, the slaves that are undoubtedly in the most difficult position. But again, like the elders in, in chapter 1, there's the drive to honesty and trustworthiness, not to steal for dishonest gain, and even to be bearing witness, teaching. The command Titus has for this church is a long-term commitment to following a pattern of behaviour, a devotion to doing what is good. The second theme in it, I think, is about teaching one another. They're given Titus and then the elders to teach them these things, but they're also given each other. And we get this picture of churches where it's not just a single pastor. That's not the pattern laid down, but but rather everyone's responsible for teaching and encouraging those around them, and particularly those younger than them. So the older men in verse 2 need to be worthy of respect. Otherwise, who's going to imitate them? And although in the very short term for them, in verse 7, it's Titus that is giving the particular example to the younger men. I I take it that when he moves on, that responsibility is going to fall to the elders and the older blokes. Along with all the other bits of teaching, he's told. There are no lone ranger Christians here. No one holding a faith themselves and getting on with life. Their identity is as part of a people of Jesus. So they need to be setting an example to others by good doing. There needs to be an integrity in their teaching, a seriousness, a soundness of speech to impress on younger Christians the characteristics of mature belief. They're to be something that's worth imitating. I think they're meant to be good parents to the church family. You get here as well the the negative side of it in verse 8. Titus and then other older Christians there to live such good lives that their opponents are neutered. That might be talking about opposition from outside the church. I wonder if it's referring to opposition inside. Maybe the false teachers in chapter 1 who are going to lose so many of their disciples. Who might be cynical and object to Titus' ministry. And in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says that their actions just don't testify to knowledge of God. 
So the Christian leaders here, they need to make sure that there's no ammunition like that against them. Then, just as Titus is to minister to the younger men, the, the older women are to minister to the younger women. Now, I assume that's to protect both sides, uh, protect them from the risks of inappropriate relationships. Pastoral relationships become intense, and there's wisdom in being wary of compromising situations. It's probably also primarily because it's the older women who will have the experience and the insight into the younger women's lives that Titus, who is probably a, a single bloke, an itinerant preacher and from another country. He's just not going to have. But whatever the reason, it's the church as a whole with the breadth of human experience that is responsible for bringing up their young and for modelling Christian adulthood and encouraging self-control, maturity, temperance, love and endurance. And if all of that gets left to a single pastor, well... Single pastors go wrong. It can be immensely damaging then to a younger Christian's faith when a role model cracks. But if the whole church is acting like role models, then the whole picture will be more resilient. It'll be clearer that each part of the body is just following the same set of instructions, the same DNA, the same unfailing role model presented in verse 13. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Third theme, and I'm aware that as a free man and a bloke, this is easy for me to say, um, but I think all five groups here carry a sense of costly change. For the sake of the gospel. You see it clearest in verses 9 and 10. The slaves, they get the toughest lot in Roman society. They have a harsh life. They have no rights to speak of. And, and so it would be really surprising if there wasn't a culture of slaves getting their own back where they can. Perhaps presenting one face to their master and another to their peers. Probably stealing where they could get away with it. No one would really trust a slave. Probably working to rule. Doing the minimum, because what have they got invested in doing more? There's even a heroism to it, isn't there? There's a, a heroism in rebellion or getting one over on your boss. Think of, think of Spartacus. Or Robin Hood stealing from the rich. Or, or that really problematic parable in Luke 16. And you get the shrewd manager that Jesus seems to commend for ripping his boss off. And then these guys are Christian slaves. So they know what that means. That means that Jesus has set them free from the ultimate slavery. The world has no grip left on them. They are citizens of heaven in verse 14. Surely they should shake off the shackles of the oppressor and live free. A a Roman citizen couldn't be held in slavery. How could they? A Christian. But Titus is to go to them and say, no. Yes, you are citizens of heaven. 
You're a people belonging to Christ himself. But in this present age, submit yourself fully to these men who claim to own you. Try to please them. Be completely trustworthy to them. Be self-controlled, godly and upright. How could he ask them to do that? It's because in verse 11 to 14, the covers have been pulled back and a truth has been shown. It's because they know that they've got something better than their masters. And the picture of richness in Cretan society misses the real point completely. They have a better thing. A grace of God has appeared and they can hold that out in generous love to their oppressors. You get it similarly but to a lesser extent, I think, in in verse 5 for the younger women. They're commanded to be busy at home when in that culture and admittedly in mine, men will often be lazy around the house. They're commanded to submit to their husbands. And perhaps we can come at this with evangelical glasses uh, and we can see that in a whole Bible framework with a, a theology of equality and leadership being different things and, and pictures of the Trinity where we see equality but reverent, loving submission there as well. But perhaps that might make it great a bit less. But this would probably often have been referring to non-Christian husbands and a brutish, sexist culture. Why would a citizen of heaven, a free woman of the people of Christ, accept such a demeaning, unfair status? Verse 5. So that no one will malign the word of God. So that no one will be turned away from the gospel by the spurious claim that Christianity turns women against their husbands and breaks down families. That's a big deal in the Middle East, for example. Those are the the two clear examples. But I think it's okay to say that all of these commands are somewhat onerous. Is it unfair? Yeah. And certainly in first century cultures, women and slaves got a harsh deal. I'm sure that's still the case. But all of them are commanded to be different and distinct from surrounding culture. This self-control that comes up again and again is an uncretan characteristic. They're aspiring to a different set of virtues. They're marching to a different drum. And so all of those commands, they're going to weigh heavy at times. There'll be internal struggles. Self-control is hard, isn't it? If it's not, I think you're probably doing it wrong. We love our, our rage. Or our drink. Or our gossip. We hate endurance, putting up with with provocation and challenge for years on end. It's difficult. There'll be external pressures. There'll be opposition and mockery. Why should they stay the course? It's because of what's appeared in verses 11 to 14. It's because they can see clearly how rich they've been made in the grace of God. And so they're to be new people, set apart by their commitment to doing good. It's it's not so others will think that they're wonderful, 
That's nice if it happens, but it's, it's not the purpose. It, it's not so that they can achieve personal freedom and fulfillment. They've already got that in Christ. It's so that in every way they'll make the teaching about Jesus attractive. So verse 13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Don't undermine that. What's that going to look like for us? Um, I'll let you decide if, which category you fit into. Uh, I won't comment on people's age, although Tony, big day's coming. But wherever you are in that social mix, the teaching will be challenging. I'm not sure it needs that much translation for us. So follow the pattern of Jesus. Look over verses 1 to 10. Or scan over the first half of chapter 1 and, and challenge yourself with this model. What are the areas that don't come naturally to you? Is it temperance? Moderation? Is it, is it alcohol? Anger? Your patterns of speech? Is it your readiness to submit to others? That's pretty alien in our culture in some ways, isn't it? Find those areas of challenge and bring them before God and make verses 11 and 12 a daily prayer for yourself. Ask him as he reveals his grace to you to teach you how to live in a new way. Think about the, the emphasis on teaching one another. Think about the shared pastoral responsibility for the Cretan churches and ask, are you part of that somewhere? If not, why? Why? Where were you going to receive this kind of long-term teaching in relationships from more mature Christians? Where will you see admirable models to follow? How will you take part in discipling others? A, a, a church where people just rocked up on a, on a Sunday for an hour of preaching and singing doesn't fit the bill. Maybe it's meeting up with someone regularly for a coffee and a chat and a prayer. Maybe it's other things. I'll, I'll bang the house group drum again. Get involved in small groups of Christians. And ideally from a range of ages and backgrounds, people different to yourself. Because it's in those kind of contexts. It's in deep, close relationships with people who are different to us. That the learning takes place. And the corners get knocked off and, and we get shown other perspectives and noses get put out of joint. But then by the grace of God, his spirit's at work and, and we learn about the gospel. Or the girls in church have a spine and that's fantastic. Use it as a place to build each other up and encourage one another. Gents, we're, we're rubbish at this. Um, but if you're able to go on that men's walk on the 30th of July, get involved. That kind of thing is a fantastic opportunity for older and younger people and teenagers to spend time together and build those respectful teaching relationships. 
I don't know about you, but I, I know from my own experience of Christian summer camps, there was nothing so influential on my developing faith as, as seeing glorious Christian adults living and shining for the gospel. It's why youth work matters. And I mean this, do talk to us if, if you might be interested in that. Our, our planning process for next year is getting underway and we need ideas and we need volunteers. And long-term discipleship by Christian adults is staggeringly valuable to young people. Are you going to get your teeth into an apprenticeship, a, a long-term commitment to learning a new lifestyle? Are you going to devote yourself to discipling and equipping younger believers? And what will that look like? Last thought, I, I've overrun badly, I'm sorry. Costly change for the gospel. So what are the areas that will cost for you? Where in your life would you honestly prefer not to follow this pattern? What are the appetites that you want to feed? What are the indignities you don't want to face? What, what are the opportunities you don't want to miss out on, which everyone else gets to indulge in, but you know doesn't fit? Brothers and sisters, remember, we have revealed to us a greater treasure. A satisfaction made known to us that goes beyond anything the world has. The grace of God has appeared and so we live in the light of it. And then we live in eager expectation of the full glory of Jesus being shown. He is called and redeemed a dearly treasured people for himself. Let's be eager to do what's good. I'll pray and then we'll hand over to Paddy. Father God, thank you for your gospel. Thank you that though we were blind, you've revealed to us something staggering. An offer of salvation available even to us. Please help us to respond. Amen.